Well, my name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of leading us through our uh, study of the scriptures today as we start a new journey through uh, the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke being one of four uh, Gospels that are found in the New Testament, these writers who tell us the story of Jesus in faithful, fruitful ways. And so today we're going to start that journey through the Gospel of Luke, uh, which is a story for sinners and sufferers like you and me. And so as we prepare to kind of dig into this gospel over the next several months, uh, let's acquaint ourselves with the human author of this book, a guy named Luke. Luke was the man whose personality the Holy Spirit used to bring the truth and the story of Jesus to bear on our lives still today. And Luke is unique when you compare his gospel to the other four gospels or the other three gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John in that Luke is the one author who wasn't Jewish. He was a Gentile, which is a shorthand for a non-Jewish person. Specifically, Luke was Greek. He was born in the city of Antioch and he was raised in a Hellenistic culture. He received a world-class education. He was a very ambitious man as he studied and learned and trained to become a physician. He was a medical doctor. This made Luke a fascinating figure in the scriptures and a fascinating figure in the history of the church, for he was both a man of science and a man of faith. He was a man who believed in miracles and he believed in medicine. And this was important if you were going to record faithfully the story of Jesus, because Jesus' story is chock full of miracles. But we're also telling the story of the one who's responsible for the observable world. He is the one through whom all things was created. And so the observable world that provides a playground for scientists to engage and to interact with the raw materials of the created order that are manipulated and rearranged to contribute to human flourishing, Lord willing, those, that was created by the same Jesus who performed miracle after miracle after miracle in the gospel. And after Luke met Jesus, once he heard the story of Jesus and he put his faith in Christ, became a disciple, a follower of the Messiah. Not long after that, he found himself traveling with a guy named Paul. Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. He was rescued and redeemed by Jesus in a dramatic fashion. And then Jesus commissioned him to take the gospel to peoples and places that had not yet heard it. And so Jesus, uh, Paul spent his life bringing the story of Jesus to bear on people groups all over the known Greco-Roman world at the time. And Luke was one of his travel companions on his second missionary journey that took place in the mid-50s AD. He and a guy named Silas and a guy named Timothy used to run and roll with Paul throughout the era. And if you were going to travel in antiquity and do the things that Paul was doing, you wanted a guy like Luke in your corner. You wanted a physician to be with you, someone who could take care of you after cities are beating you up and casting you aside. You wanted a doctor to be with you when your ship wrecks on the island of Malta. You wanted a doctor to be with you when you're imprisoned in Rome. And so Luke was journeying with Paul and he was God's gracious gift to him as he suffered in many ways. Now, around the time of Paul's death, somewhere in the mid-60s, 64 to 67 AD, Luke then relocated to Greece. And it's from Greece where he researched and wrote his account of the story of Jesus. 
And so his gospel would be the first of a two-volume work as he tells about the story of Jesus. But then in the book of Acts, he tells the story of the early church. And as you read through Acts, you see him using uh, first-person plural pronouns, including himself in the story as someone who was there, someone who was with all the things that were taking place. And so it is from Greece, most likely, where Luke would write his account of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, there was a second century preface to Luke's gospel that comes down to us that gives us a little more insight into who Luke was. Luke was a man who never married. He was a single person devoted to his Savior, utterly satisfied by the presence of Christ in his life. And he walked this world as a single man, never had children, and he lived a long time. Church history tells us Luke died at the age of 84 in a place called Boeotia. And and not long after that, Constantine the Great would take Luke's remains and transport them to Constantinople, which is modern-day Turkey. And around 356 AD, Luke's remains were preserved at the Church of the Apostles, where many believe they continue to sit today. So he was a fascinating figure, a fascinating historical figure, a real person like you and me with real struggles and real doubts and real insecurities. He was a real human being, much like us. And you think about some of the features of his biography. Luke was a physician, a doctor. Luke was a missionary. He traveled with the Apostle Paul. Luke was a theologian who thought deeply about the things of God. Luke was a historian. And this is one of the features I really want you to think about this morning as Luke proves himself in this opening passage of his gospel to be a stickler for details. He proves himself in the opening verses of this gospel to be a profound researcher. He he does his work to craft an orderly account of the story of Jesus for sinners and sufferers like us. And so the opening four verses of this gospel, they kind of follow the literary literary devices of antiquity. If you were to compare Luke's opening four verses with some of the ways that other historical works coming out of antiquity, how they begin, you're going to find Luke following very similar features. But what you're going to see in Luke is sort of, he's sort of in a class all by himself. Like his prologue reads more uh, classically and more profoundly and, and in many ways more formally than some of his contemporaries and some of the contemporaries that would write ancient history coming out of that era. And so it's a beautiful way to begin his book. Notice beginning in verse one, this is what he writes. He says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, it also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. And so that's his prologue. That's how he opens his account of the story of Jesus. And he does several things here. He justifies his burden for wanting to write this story down. He justifies his burden for wanting to contribute to the other accounts of the story of Jesus that were circulating in the first century. He assures readers that he's done his due diligence. 
Essentially, he's saying, I know what I'm talking about. I've carefully investigated. I've interviewed eyewitnesses. I've been a part of the story. And now I want to tell you what went down. And then he dedicates his work to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus is described as most excellent or most honorable, which leads us to believe that he was a man of high status within the Hellenistic society from which Luke is writing. He was likely someone of, in a position of power and influence in his society. He may have been the very one to fund Luke as he was researching and writing this gospel. But then notice why he dedicates it to Theophilus. Because he states his objective, he tells us why he's writing down the story of Jesus. He says, I'm doing all of this work. I'm laboring to provide you an orderly sequence of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. He says, I'm writing to provide you with a sense of assurance. I'm writing to provide you with a sense of security as you navigate an insecure world world. But the way he designs these first four four verses, the way it kind of follows some of the historical literary devices of his day, Luke is clearly framing this narrative from a historical point of view. And he frames it this way because Luke wants to convince people like you and me that the story of Jesus is reasonable to believe. That is a story that is reasonable to believe. Now, not everyone believes that today. We live in a world that likes to pit science and religion against each other. We like to pit faith and and substance against each other as if the two cannot exist. But every time I look into a mirror, I see a head and I see a chest. Which reminds me that when God created me in his image, he designed me with both a mind and a heart. And if God created me that way, then it is not unreasonable to think that the story of Jesus or that faith and science or that reason and affections or reason and imagination or reason and all those intangible substance of the human psyche, that those things cannot coexist. And I think Luke would agree. I don't think Luke shared a simplistic binary view on these things. He was a man of science. He was a man of theology. He was a man of reason. He was a man of faith. And clearly, he has leveraged his mental faculties towards recording and relaying a faithful account of the story of Jesus. So for Luke, the story of Jesus is reasonable to believe because there is a historical dimension to it. And you're going to notice this as you walk through the Gospel of Luke because there are moments where he litters historical references for readers like you and I, historical references that are verifiable outside of the Bible, that are verifiable outside of biblical sources. I'll give you one example of where he does it. And you're going to see many as we walk through this book together. But I'll just give you one this morning in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to what he says. He says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. The first registration that took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Now, this is just a historical reference. It doesn't necessarily enhance the events of Jesus's life. But what it does is it positions Jesus' life in the context of human history. Real time, real space. Because when we're dealing with the story of Jesus, we're not talking about a legend. We're not talking about mythology. Legends and mythology were rampant in the Hellenistic world. 
And so when Lee goes to write this story, he's very clear. I'm not writing legend. I'm not writing mythology. I'm writing history. And so he locates the story of Jesus in a historical context, acknowledging that it has a historical dimension to it. Now, there's a couple of other things that I want you to consider when you think about the historicity and the reasonableness or the reliability of this story that we're going to be studying together. You take into consideration the date in which Luke was writing. And you think well about the fact that the date of Luke's gospel is too early for it to have been a story that was made up. Many scholars believe that Luke wrote his story sometime between 75 and 84 AD. And that's just a few decades after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection occurred. Now, if you were going to tell a story that you wanted to locate in the context of human history, a real story, a true story that you wanted other people to believe, then you would have, wait, you would have wanted to wait a lot longer to write that story because you would want to wait to make up a story when all the eyewitnesses were gone. But Luke's very clear that he interviewed eyewitnesses, and there were thousands of eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus. When Jesus fed the multitudes, remember, he fed 5,000 people with three loaves of bread and two, five loaves of bread and two fish. And we're just a few decades removed from that event. So there are many eyewitnesses in the known world who could have stepped up and stood out, contradicting the claims that Luke is making about the story of Jesus in this historical work. And so the date of Luke's gospel is too early to the events of Jesus' life and ministry for it to have been made up for it to be classified as something that is a legend or classified as something as mythology or even a downright lie that somebody was making up to get some influence in the world. Which brings us to the second dynamic of this historical dimension. Not only is the gospel of Luke too early to, Jesus's, to the events of Jesus' life for it to be made up, the content in Luke's gospel is too counterproductive for it to gain any traction at the time Luke is writing this story. Meaning if you're going to make up a story that you want to influence people, if you want to make up a story that's going to rally people to believe and to give their lives to and many give their lives for, if you're going to make up that story, you're not going to include the details that Luke includes here. You're not going to come up with the narrative flow or the plot line of Jesus's story. I'll give you an example. Look at the birth of Jesus. Luke gives us more details about the birth of Jesus than any of the other three Gospels, or any of the four Gospels combined. Luke just gives us a lot more. And so if you were going to make up a story to, about the Messiah, about the Christ, about the Anointed One coming into the world, chances are you're not going to tell people that this Messiah was born to an unwed teenage girl. And chances are you are not going to describe his entry into the world as in such a humble way of happening, of being born in a manger, which a stall that was about as big as a parking stall. If you ever see a parking lot in the city, if you see those little white lines that hold cars, that's kind of the size of the space that Jesus was born into. But then you're not going to keep going with the story and talk about the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one coming into the world and then being so disturbed about what he's got to do that he enters into the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he's arrested and he's weeping and he's crying and he's stressing over what's about to go down in his life. And he's even asking the father for another way. If you're going to make up a story, chances are the hero wasn't going, isn't going to be depicted in such a weak light. 
But then you think about the climax of the story of Jesus coming when he goes to the cross and he dies a criminal's death, a cursed death, a shameful death. Chances are, if you were going to make up a story that you wanted to, to have an impact on the whole world and you're just trying to deceive people or bring people into, you're not going to include that. Your imagination isn't that great. You're not going to think about a suffering servant, a suffering Messiah giving his life to atone for the sins of the world. And so not, you're not going to show the Messiah naked and flayed open, dying on the cross. But then when the Lord flips the script on that plot line and he resurrects Jesus from the grave, you're not going to entrust that detail to a group of people whose word didn't carry any weight in the first century. And Luke is going to point out that the first eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus were women. And in the Greco-Roman Judaic world of the first century, a woman's word did not carry any weight. A, woman, a woman's point of view wasn't brought into the court of law because they weren't viewed as being on the same plane as their male counterparts in antiquity. And so if you really want people to believe the story of Jesus, you really want to convince people to follow Jesus, you're not going to entrust that story. First eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ to women whose word didn't mean anything in the first century, but yet that's exactly what happened. The details of this story are too counterproductive for it to be a lie. It's too counterproductive to be able to gain any traction in the first century world that continues to gain traction today as the story is being told over and over and over again. So unless the events of Jesus's life and ministry unfolded in the way that they did, no one would have told this story this way. And so Luke wants to be very clear. I'm telling you a true story, a story of events that took place in real time, in real space, historical events. But then he goes on, not only are we talking about human history, when we talk about a, a historical dimension, there is a, there's a much bigger history that Luke has in mind as he tells us the story of Jesus. Because he's not just concerned with bare human history, Luke is concerned with what's called salvation history. He's concerned with an epic story that God has been writing since the beginning of creation. This is what he's getting after in verse 1 when he says, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled. And that word fulfilled is packed full of stuff. He's saying, I'm writing this story to fill the biblical-shaped hole in people's lives, this hope that people have for a Messiah to come and to do things for the world that no one else can do. I'm writing a part of that story that centers on the coming of Jesus. And so he's concerned not just with human history, he's concerned with salvation history saying God has invaded time and space to do things that are of an epic proportion. This isn't, in other words, the story of Jesus didn't just happen spontaneously. It didn't spontaneously erupt in the world. No, the story of Jesus is a part of, part of a long, slow flowing current of lava that's been rolling down a mountainside for a really long time. And it's consuming everything in its path encompassing everything. And when, the, when all is said and done, there's only going to be one story being told. 
And every other story is going to be viewed in light of this slow-moving lava flow that is sweeping up all of human history into the context of God's salvation history. This is what Luke is driving after. So there's a historical dimension to this story. And then there's also a personal dimension to this story. Because we're not talking about irrelevant events. We're not talking about a story that isn't intended to do something to us or to do something for us. We're talking about a personal story. This is why Luke names Theophilus. I'm dedicating this work to you, Theophilus, and to other people like you who are struggling. Other people like you who are wrestling with insecurities as they walk through an insecure world. I want to provide you with certainty. I want to provide you with reassurance because the story of Jesus isn't just reasonable to believe. The story of Jesus is designed to reassure the insecure. This is what the story of Jesus does for sinners and sufferers like us. It reassures us in the midst of our insecurities, no matter what shape our insecurities might take. So the story of Jesus is given to shore people like us up. And so Luke says, I'm writing to accomplish this in your life, Theophilus. And by extension, I'm writing to accomplish this in the lives of sinners and sufferers just like you. So the gospel, the story of Jesus, has something to say to those who may be physically insecure among us today. You step into Luke chapter 5, and there's a man we meet who's described as being a leper. He has a physical deformity that has caused him to be very insecure in the world. So much so that he's living by himself out in the woods. So much so that he has no human contact or interaction with other people. No one has physically touched this man in years. And yet he catches wind about this guy named Jesus who's going around performing all kinds of miracles. And he's starting to suspect that there's something unique about this Jesus from Nazareth. And when he catches wind of Jesus and he knows that Jesus is coming by, he runs to him and he says, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus do? He turns to this physically insecure person and he touches him. And he says, I will be clean. And so Jesus has a word to say to those who are feeling physically insecure, whether it's because of an illness or some sort of physical struggle that you're having, or maybe it's because you don't like what you see when you look in the mirror. And you don't like the comparisons that are occurring every time you open up Instagram and social media and you begin to see others and you compare yourself there. Understand that the same Jesus who touched the leper is the same Jesus who knit you together, the same God who knit you together in the womb of your mom. The same God who designed your life. And he is the God who loves you. He is the God who accepts you. He is the God who touches you when nobody else, it seems, wants to. So he has a word to say to those who are physically insecure. He has a word to say to those who are socially insecure. In that same chapter, in Luke chapter 5, we meet a guy named Levi. Levi is a tax collector, which means he's turned his back on his own people. He's been kicked out of the Jewish world. Jews hate this man because of his life choices, because of who his employer is. And so he's been pushed out, socially insecure. And yet one day Jesus shows up at his tax booth and he sees him there and he says, Levi, come follow me. He says, Levi, I know nobody else wants you. Nobody else accepts you. Nobody else is with you, but I'm here to accept you. I'm here to be with you. So come 
follow me. And he has a word to say to those who are feeling socially insecure. And you don't know if you feel like you have a place or a space in this life. And, and you need to hear the story of Jesus that assures you that you do. But then you think about the morally insecure those whose lives have been turned upside down due to their sinful decisions and sinful choices. You step into Luke chapter 7, and there you're going to read the story of a woman whose name isn't given to us, but she is described as being a sinful woman, which leads us to believe that she was probably a prostitute, a very promiscuous. She had a reputation, a sinful woman. And she learns that Jesus is dining in a Pharisee's house, and she has the audacity to step into the room. Walk in front of all that judging eyes that are upon her, and she falls at the feet of Jesus and begins to weep over them. She begins to wash his feet with her, her hair, and Jesus looks at this woman and says, I forgive you. Jesus is a word to say to those who are feeling morally insecure. You feel like you've made all the wrong choices. You've done all the wrong things, and you're wondering, is forgiveness possible? And we hear the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus says, yes. In the story of Jesus, Jesus says, I will forgive you. But then you think about those who may be spiritually insecure. In Luke chapter 8, we meet a man who's described as being a demoniac. He's demon-possessed. He's harassed by spiritual forces that are a lot stronger than he is. And he's living in a cemetery. He's by himself being tormented by this demonic influence. And Jesus steps onto the horizon of his life and he says, I'm here to free you. I'm here to set you free. And this is what the story of Jesus does for sinners and sufferers like us. This is what the story of Jesus does for those who may be spiritually insecure. Maybe the enemy has gained some ground in your life and you wonder if liberty is possible. Is freedom available? Well, the story of Jesus says that it is. The story of Jesus is that he has come to set the captives free. And then you move one step further and you consider the emotionally insecure. You get into Luke chapter 13 and you find Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. And listen to what he says. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You have this tender Jesus weeping over the city, saying, I'm, I'm here to gather you up. I'm here to take care of you. But you're too emotionally insecure to believe it. You're not willing to come to me. And for those of you who may be emotionally insecure right now, maybe you think you've pushed Jesus away too many times. Understand that Jesus is still saying to you, I am like, I am like a hen wanting to gather chicks under my wings. I want to draw you in. I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that I care for you. This is what the story of Jesus declares for sinners and sufferers like us. Jesus has come to reassure the insecure. So no matter what type of insecurity you feel in this life, Jesus is the solution. The story of Jesus can shore it up and assure you that God loves you and that God wants you. And so we want to hear this story so that we move in his directions. The story of Jesus is reasonable to believe. 
The story of Jesus reassures the insecure. And then lastly, the story of Jesus renews faith for the journey. When you find your insecurities being solved in Jesus, that's going to help you stand tall. That's going to help you look people in the eye. That's going to cause your shoulders to roll back so that you can walk through this world with a sense of dignity and a sense of purpose. And you can become a stabilizing force in an unstable world. You can become a source of security for tons of insecure people. You know that most conflicts in life are driven by insecure people. Most of the hostility that we face in the world that is, is fraught with insecure people causing so much of that. And it's in the story of Jesus where hostility becomes harmony. It's in the story of Jesus where friction becomes fellowship. It's in the story of Jesus where insecures are made secure. It's in the story of Jesus where our faith is renewed so that we can keep following Jesus. This was Luke's message to Theophilus. I'm writing so that you can keep going in your story. I'm writing so that you can keep believing. I'm writing so that you can keep journeying with Jesus. And so in the gospel of Luke, journey is such a big metaphor. You're going to see this over and over and over again. One of my favorite books on Luke's gospel is called Eating Your Way Through the Gospel of Luke. It's written by a guy named Robert Karras. And he points out that all throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus is on the move. But what I love about it is that Jesus is on the move between meals. So he's either going to eat something or he's just leaving a moment where he's eating something. He's either going to a party or he's leaving a party. I love this about Jesus. He liked to eat and he liked to party. And so he was on the move in Luke's gospel doing that time and time again because movement is an aspect of this gospel that we're going to dial into. And for those of us who are finding their insecurities solved in Christ, we are coming into relationship with Jesus to live by faith in him. We must understand that to be a Christian or to be a disciple means to journey through this life with Jesus. It means to live by faith. It means to be on the move. The Christian should never be static. Discipleship should never stand still. We are on the move. We are people in process. And so Luke would say to us in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone is going to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So yes, there is something called self-denial in following Jesus. Yes, there is something called cross-bearing in the Christian life, but there's also someone named Jesus in this life. And so we deny ourselves and we take up our crosses so that we might journey with Jesus, so that we might be with Jesus, so that we might walk with Jesus. But in order for that to happen, our faith must be renewed over and over and over again. This is one of the unique things about the way this gospel begins. Did you notice in verse 4 that Luke is telling Theophilus a story that he's already heard? He's just reminding him of what he's already been instructed in. And so when we talk about our faith being renewed for the journey, we're talk, not talking about learning lots of new things. We're not talking about becoming theological experts on every category of systematic theology or anything like that. We're talking about getting to know the story of Jesus. We're not talking about growing wide. We're talking about growing deep. We're talking about learning and relearning that which we've already learned. Hearing and rehearing that which we've already heard. 
This is where faith is renewed. It's renewed in the story of Jesus as the story of Jesus is rehearsed to us over and over and over again. It's kind of like solar energy where, you know, a solar power source, it is exposed to the sun for so long that when things go dark, it keeps rolling. The story of Jesus renews our faith to the journey so that we are so exposed to Jesus that when things go dark, we keep rolling. So that when life keeps hard, life gets hard, we continue to live by faith. We're so acquainted with the story of Jesus and being renewed by the story of Jesus that, that we're willing to deny ourselves and take up our crosses to follow him. This renewing power of the story of Jesus is something we want to tap into as we, as we study this book together. There was a, a guy named Jess Movald who's an elite running coach located in the city of New York. She was interviewed by Runner's World recently and identified kind of the top five principles for successful running, for being someone who can keep, get into running and to keep running. She said factors like finishing a marathon, self-discipline, and a workout plan are essential for guiding runners through a season. But number one on her list to maintaining a long-term Maintain, maintaining a long-term relationship with running is finding what really drives you and letting it drive you. She said in this article, identifying this unlocks everything that's possible for a runner. That understanding of why you put on your running shoes can be used to hold yourself accountable when you're distracted or discouraged by short-term goals. Whether or not you nail a speed session, those inner passions will persist to drive you. And so we want to think about what drives us as disciples. What drives us as followers of Christ? Why do we gather together on Sundays? Why do we scatter together to serve our city? Why do we do the things that we are doing as followers of Jesus? What is driving us? Well, my hope is that what's driving us is the story of Jesus. This story that renews faith for the journey, this story that we are rehearsing over and over and over again so that we might continue living by faith. And so let me give you two takeaways as we uh, start our journey through Luke's gospel over the next several months. Two declarations that I'm praying for our church and that I want to be true for you and true for me. And the first is that I want us to be shaped by the gospel, shaped by this story. I want our lives to be defined by the story of Jesus so that our micro-narratives, our individual lives, our, our miniature biographies would be viewed in referent and in relationship to the epic biography of Jesus. That our lives would be shaped by the story of Christ. That that would be the story to define who we are in this world. That his story would define what we are to be about as we journey through this life. So we want to be shaped by this story. And then secondly, we want to be servants of this story. Maybe you notice that phrase in verse 2. It's a powerful phrase where Luke says, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed, handed them down to us. Luke's saying, I've, I've captured this baton from those who've gone before me, and now I'm relaying it to you in the form of this gospel. Now I want you to take this gospel, this story, and I want you to relay it to others. 
I want you to be a servant of the word. I want you to engage your mind in the worship of Jesus. I want you to think deeply about the story of Jesus so that you might share it with others. Providing security to those who are fraught with insecurities. Becoming a servant of the word. Being a student, a disciple, a learner. Because the Christian life isn't about being a sponge. It's not about being a group of people who soak up the story of Jesus. The Christian life is about being a funnel that is transferring the, the story of Jesus into other, into other containers. We want to transfer the story of Jesus into the lives of those that we're loving, the lives of those that we are serving, and the lives of those that we are in relationship with. As we are shaped by this story, we want to be servants of this story. Perhaps you're familiar with the name Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal is considered one of history's greatest scientists. He invented the barometer. He was a very well-respected philosophical scientist. But he wasn't always a Christian. He wasn't always a believer in this story. But then one day, he was traveling and his carriage was suspended on a bridge and he was literally hanging between life and death. And as he was literally hanging between life and death, Pascal began to think about just one thing. And it wasn't all the things, all the knowledge that he had accumulated as a philosophical scientist. It wasn't all the accomplishments, accomplishments that he had had up to that point. One thought penetrated his heart as he was literally suspended between life and death. And that was the thought of his sister. You see, his sister was someone who heard the story of Jesus. His sister was someone who was shaped by the story of Jesus. His sister was someone whose life was given to being a servant of the story of Jesus. So when he was literally hanging in that moment, the only thought that pierced his heart was his sister and the witness she gave to the story of Jesus. And so when Pascal got out of that situation and he stepped onto the other side of the chasm or the bridge or wherever it was located, he, he put his faith in Jesus because his life was impacted by someone who was shaped by this story and someone who was a servant of this story. And as you and I live our lives through this world, we want to be shaped by the story of Jesus. We want to be servants of the story of Jesus. We want our lives to count for that which will last. And when all is said and done, only the story of Jesus is going to echo throughout the echelon of eternity. Only the story of Jesus is going to be rehearsed forever and ever and ever and ever. So you and I have the privilege of rehearsing that story now. We have the privilege of giving our lives to this story even now. And so let's do that. Let's be shaped by the story of Jesus and let's be servants of the story of Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Luke. We thank you for his diligence to study and to research, and to interview. We thank you for your Holy Spirit to be at work in and through his personality to provide us with an orderly account of the life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah. We thank you for preserving your word so that it can come to us today. Thank you for the opportunity we have to take this story and to transfer it into the lives of other sinners and sufferers like us who are fraught with insecurity, who may find themselves loved and accepted, wanted and desired by Jesus. I pray, God, that you would fill us 
with your Holy Spirit so that we might be shaped by the story of Christ and so that we might be servants of the story of Christ. God, we lift up the city of Seattle to you now, recognizing that our city is filled with insecure people. And I pray that the security we have found in Christ, I pray that that would be contagious and that you would use us to reassure others like us so that more and more people might come to believe in the story of Jesus. God, we love you and we thank you for this, praying it all in his name. Amen.